You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. Banks have had to deal with higher funding costs during aggressive Fed tightening the last year and a half, but liquidity pressures have also put a strain on balance sheets throughout this year. With the Fed expected to potentially cut rates sometime next year, how should banks manage their assets and liabilities during this rapidly changing environment? On today's episode, we talk with Mike Delisle, Senior Vice President of Asset Liability Management with FHN Financial, about how banks have adjusted their balance sheets during Fed tightening and how they can best position themselves for the year ahead. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Mike Delisle, Senior Vice President of Asset Liability Management with FHN Financial. But first, a quick market update. The Fed left interest rates unchanged this week, as expected, but the overall tone was that of a hawkish skip. The dot plot showed more FOMC participants believe there will be one more hike this year, and rates will not be cut to as low a level as suggested in the June dot plot. With the FOMC statement only undergoing some minor tweaks from July, it's fair to say the last three months of encouraging inflation data did little to sway the Fed from its slightly hawkish momentum. Treasury yields moved up modestly across the curve after the decision and Powell's press conference, though the full market reaction will be realized over the next couple trading sessions. In other words, we still can't tell whether markets believe what the Fed is selling. Intermediate and long-term yields did reach cycle highs earlier this week, but otherwise had stayed within a relatively narrow range the last couple weeks despite some big economic data reports. August inflation data came in a little hotter than expected last week, with the CPI and PPI accelerating from the previous month but not quickly enough to change the market perception of the inflation trajectory. Retail spending last month came in essentially as expected when factoring in July revisions and excluding some of the noisier components. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracking model estimates third quarter growth will be 4.9%. Nonetheless, a handful of issues emerged this week that pose downside risks to growth in the near future. Crude oil prices have gradually risen since late July, but this week cleared $90 per barrel for the first time since November of last year. Student loan payments are set to resume next month, which will lower personal consumption through declining disposable income. There's also the lingering possibility of a government shutdown. And finally, the United Auto Workers strike will lower auto production for the foreseeable future. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Mike Delisle. Our guest today is Mike Delisle, Senior Vice President of Asset Liability Management with FHN Financial. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. Our topic today is ALM, Asset Liability Management, specifically in the context of where we are in the current cycle. So, The Fed raised rates rapidly the last year and a half. They're approaching their terminal rate, even if they're not quite there just yet. And I think we're still living a bit in the shadows of March bank tensions. Mike, before we talk about ALM in this current environment, can you give us a basic overview of what goes into ALM modeling? What are the key metrics and what are the important dynamics at the core of ALM? I think it's it's pretty straightforward. We're looking at, I'll say, two primary metrics, although there are a few more than that. But, you know, we're looking at volatility and earnings given changes in interest rates. Now, that could be termed earnings at risk. It may be NII. But generally, we're looking at that 
kind of spread portion of uh, a financial institution's income stream. So what's the net spread? And so NII, that's the primary because it's tangible, right? I mean, you're talking to a board, you're talking to an ALCO committee and you say, hey, we're going to gain a million two or we're going to lose four million given an interest rate change. That means something. It's tangible. The other primary metric would be economic value of equity at risk or equity at risk valuations. And so it kind of comes in different flavors, but it's essentially the price sensitivity of the balance sheet and understanding the, you know, really the value adjustment because of duration mismatch. And so with any presentation we're doing, we're primarily looking at those two measurements. Now, we may be getting a couple other things. We may talk gap, you know, where we have mismatch between cash flows or, you know, different types of uh, basis risk. There are a lot of things that come into it. But those two primary measurements, NI at risk and EDE, are really what we're looking at primarily. So in those models, is the thinking, you know, when a bank is trying to uh, to manage their assets and liabilities, Planning for specific scenarios or, of course, uh, not knowing the future um, scenarios with certain levels of probability, um, you know, if interest rates go up by X amount, if they go down by X amount, um, how to best kind of hedge those risks or, or what are what are the models really trying to factor in? I think it gives you uh, kind of two perspectives. I, I always think about ALCO committees responsibility to balance between risk and reward. I mean, that's at the core of everything, right? And from a business standpoint. And so in this case, we're talking about interest rate risk. So strategies or tactics are generally trying to either mitigate risk or enhance earnings. And so we'll take, you know, a couple of years ago and we have a low rate environment and uh, yield opportunities are slim. You know, we start reaching further out on the curve to get a few basis points of additional yield. Well, there's a risk impact to that, that a lot of institutions are managing through now because they have longer duration assets. It's really the balance on that spectrum of risk mitigation to earnings enhancement. And I think, you know, for a lot of institutions, it's it's really so that they feel some type of confidence in being able to project earnings going forward, depending on what their structure is, to be able to anticipate either tighter budget where they may need to look at expenses and efficiency ratios or that they are going to see an expansion in margin and they want to project that out as well. I think a lot of it is getting confidence in what their projections are going forward and they need to understand the risk and reward spectrum. Let's focus now on our current environment. Um, So what are the main concerns from an ALM standpoint when the Fed not only raises rates as much as they have, but raises them this quickly. What are what are the distresses that we've seen in the last year and a half as banks have adjusted to this this new environment that changed so quickly? I would say the one that stands out the most from the recent history is uh, the concern around funding cost. There are a lot of assumptions that go into models as uh, it pertains to non-maturity deposits, and by that I mean either non-interest-bearing DDA or now accounts or money market or savings accounts. And every model has an assumption in there about how fast those rates will move with market rate movements. And so if that fund goes up by you know 200 basis points, what percentage of that do you anticipate your deposits to move? That's a soft spot of almost every model. And what we've seen is that 
in the rapid rise, there's a period where those can be lagged, but toward the back end of that rate movement, they need to be moved very aggressively. And this isn't even really getting into the whole liquidity aspect that is so prevalent in what we're talking about today. But that's what becomes a major concern. You know, how well have we assumed those deposits will move and how close will actuality come to what we projected? The other would be, and it's really related to that, is funding stability. What do we have to pay up on the deposits to maintain our deposit base, our core base? That's always kind of a wild card. You know, every institution feels like they know their depositors, and to the extent they do, that's great. But when you hit a rate cycle like the one we've been going through, history kind of goes out the window and and sensitivities jump up. Those are the two kind of related concerns, funding costs and funding stability. The one that uh, I think caught some off guard was just the impact on uh, valuations of those longer duration assets, its impact on capital ratios. And so that was the the one that happened very quickly. And so obviously that's going to be a concern going forward. You know, how sensitive are balance sheets to valuation changes? You mentioned um, in this modeling, in the projections, there is uh, a baseline assumption of how uh, quickly rates might go up. And I'm kind of curious, um, you know, the shift from a low interest rate world to one where Fed funds is closer to five and a half percent. And given how quickly it happened, are banks set up to be able to adjust their balance sheets as quickly as the Fed raised rates? Essentially, even if banks knew Fed funds would go from zero to five and a half percent in less than 18 months, is it even possible to avoid distress altogether? Or um, is this just such a, a kind of unusual circumstance that, that banks um, aren't structured to, to really adjust to very well? Uh, I think for a lot of institutions, yeah, that's a very difficult thing to manage too, because if you if you really look at how much those deposits were going to need to come up over the course of time, the shock factor of its impact on margin might have been a bit overwhelming. But I think where we where we stand now and what we've learned through this rate cycle, and, and maybe for lack of a better term, the, the kind of post-mortem on the rapid rate movement, I think we're going to be much better prepared going forward. We're going to recognize that Deposits can lag at the beginning of the rate cycle, but as the magnitude and the speed may pick up, then we're going to have to assume a faster movement on those non-maturity deposits. Or we're going to assume that they're going to shift from non-maturity type, you know, savings, money market, to time deposits where they're going to get, you know, a higher rate. I think we're better prepared now than we were um, really a couple years ago. And We'll benefit long term from that, but it, it really feels uncomfortable right now. I think there are there are a couple of points then to address. I think that's interesting. This this acknowledgement that um, the approach to ALM modeling or, or just learning from the past is is something um, to to kind of redefine uh, the future and, and how we approach it, how we try to mitigate risk. The first question then is. How is the post-Silicon Valley Bank changing how we think about ALM modeling? Um, If this scenario where rates rise as quickly as they did can happen, how do you kind of then add in that potential environment to the modeling that has happened in the past before uh, March bank tensions? And I think specifically as it relates to uh, deposit durations. I mean, it's an understatement to say it's had a significant impact. 
Uh, so two things I think that I would point to, the way that it views, that, that financial institutions view liquidity and specifically the stability of their core deposits, I think has changed. Uh, I think the sense of need to hold more in cash because of the potential of losing large depositors, I think is a much more vivid reality now than it was before SVB and some of the other things that we've gone through. And so I think we've seen almost a, um, I won't say a fear-based, but uh, you know, a, a kind of a reality-based view that we're going to have to hold more in cash, which is going to impact our spread. It's going to impact our risk position. But one of the other things that came out of this, which I think has been fascinating to me, is, is to find how much balance sheet strategy has been impacted by kind of system narrative, whether it's from regulators who are saying, here's what we can, we're concerned with, but really haven't put a lot of form to it. And so there's balance sheet strategies that are being taken in preparation, or just the reality that when a story comes out in social media, news travels so fast that can we react to it? You, you mentioned this a few minutes ago about balance sheets or banks being able to react to rapidly rising rates. I think the other part of this is being able to respond and react to rapidly changing narrative. Now banks should be concerned about deposits. Oh, we got to change our strategy. Or now they should be concerned about liquidity. We've got to change our strategy. Man, that is, it has changed a lot since, um, you know, 10 years ago, especially, but even over the last two years. I think the big impact again is liquidity specifically, no, no doubt there. Some duration mismatch concerns, absolutely, but also this kind of ambiguous narrative shaping of bank tactics and strategies. When it comes to liquidity, what issues are you still seeing at this point uh, now that we're about six months um, after Silicon Valley Bank failed and, and kind of these dominoes started to fall and people started to get worried? Are the existing Fed facilities sufficient to support banks with uh, in terms of their liquidity needs, or are banks using other methods to shore up their liquidity? I think based on what we've seen, and so you know, I, I have to put that in the context of we work with 240, 250 institutions, and the average asset size is about a billion. So when you look at this, you know, we're talking about those smaller local banks as opposed to those 100 billion and greater. You know, it's kind of a different universe. But I'd say for our clients, uh, yeah, I think the facilities are there. I think when they first came out with some of the term uh, borrowing facility, I think the understanding of how that is reflected may not have been really clearly understood. In other words, here, go ahead and pledge you know, your securities. You're getting an evaluation that is favorable to you. There's no haircut on that. I think those were all good. But the reality was when you took all those on-balance sheet securities and pledged them, it had an impact on your liquidity ratios when you would go in and look at, for instance, call report or just kind of public information. With the learning curve coming up, yeah, I think the facilities are there. I think the, the long-term effect has been, though, because there is a need to hold a greater kind of liquidity buffer, there's been more use of FHLP advances or more more use of term funding. And so that's had an impact on the cost of funds rapidly going up. There's been an effect of it, but I, I think the resources are there. We need to understand their impact on all aspects of kind of our reporting, if that makes sense. You, you mentioned regulatory changes, um, and I think there is a sense that there are some regulatory proposals in the pipeline right now. Um, they haven't been 
enacted just yet, but they are in the pipeline, you know, in in a sense, trying to make sure that the systemic instability we saw in March doesn't happen again. Do you feel that the proposals that are out there right now um, are going to provide strength to the system? Um, Are they going to hold back banks a little bit too much, um, cause any additional distress now as banks adjust? Or what what is your sense of the proposed regulations that are out there right now? Again, very much an opinion, and uh, so uh, I'll I'll state it on the front end that way. Uh, I tend to be a little bit leery of overregulation, and especially when it seems like regulation uh, has one of the the intents of trying to make sure that there's a broad brushed approach, so that in other words, there's kind of a scattergun approach where it, it applies to every institution but it may not be the best for a single institution. And so it's it's really hard to come up with solutions that fit everybody. But I think there are some good things that they're trying to do. A couple of the things that, that I think about are potential of needing to really have a set limit of what you borrow as a stable funding source. The volatility of deposits and especially uninsured deposits has, has definitely captured the spotlight. You know, so how do you buffer against that? Well, maybe it's more use of borrowings to provide that buffer. The effect of that is going to be, it's going to impact margins. I think one thing I saw was, you know, potentially across the system, maybe three basis points in margin. Time will tell. Uh, I understand the purpose there. We'll just have to see what the effect is. The other one that was kind of interesting to me was this idea of the living will and having to put in essentially a plan that if there is a failure that there's a there's already a set plan for that so there's an orderly <laughs> dissolution and that you know if i'm a banker in the midwest and kind of in a rural community that's going to feel really weighty uh, i mean just just kind of going through those things i think there's value in it and i think it may help avoid the the contagion effect you know one bank goes under, but because we have these other plans, then maybe it doesn't affect other banks. I think that's a good outcome if that's what we get. But the reception of these, uh, you know, as always, they come out with new regulations in the comment periods. It'll be interesting to watch and see kind of how they are received. I think there can be some benefit, but it's also going to come at a cost, that's for sure. In this current environment where uh, the cost of funds goes up because um, Fed funds ha- has, has gone higher, but the longer duration um, of, of a bank's balance sheet is still under those lower rates, then we have um, a, a net interest margin compression, right? And this is causing distress as banks adjust to this environment. To what extent can non-balance sheet revenues give a buffer to banks that are, are seeing that, that asset liability trouble right now. And I guess, you know, really what this comes down to, as far as I understand, is fees. I think there is some ability for that to provide stability and buffer. And I guess those are are kind of coming at the same benefit. Um, I remember years ago, First Tennessee, First Horizon was really known for their non-interest income, that fee revenue. And it was a a stability. It was a, a thing that kind of leveled out projections across rate cycles. I think it can. I think that the challenge is that for a lot of institutions, it's such a small piece of their bottom line, and the net interest margin is is so uh, encompassing in the bottom line that 
it's marginal impact, absolutely. If you're looking at net income volatility, I think those do help give some buffer and would definitely encourage looking at opportunities to provide some of that buffer. So yeah, I think there's definitely a benefit to it for institutions that have a lot of fee-based income. I'll take those that are, maybe those that are originate a lot of loans and have income that relates to those or institutions with BOLI income or, or even just fees on their core banking. I think those do help to stabilize across what could be you know, a volatile interest rate environment. As I said before, um, as we're recording this uh, at the beginning of September, it's not clear exactly if the Fed is at its terminal rate just yet. So this is skipping a couple steps ahead. But I want to talk about the scenario um, of what happens when the Fed does start to cut rates. I think the issues for ALM um, when the Fed raises rates so rapidly are, are, are pretty easy to understand. Are there things that we've all been reading about, especially this year and even last year? Um, but what problems arise when the Fed does start to cut rates? I think for me and what we've seen, again, in our client base is we have been so focused on rising rates. And for those that were asset sensitive, and by that, I mean, their income projections improve with rising rates. Then there was margin expansion initially, you know, rates are going up. They saw margin expansion as the deposits had to catch up. Now we've seen compression as those funding costs are coming up very quickly. But as we're so focused on, is there one rate increase left or two in rate increases left? Um, what we're losing sight of at times is what's gone up is going to come back down. And so if your income stream is short and is um, sensitive to rates on the asset side, again, then what we need to keep in mind is that rates will move back down. And so uh, we could have policy issues on earnings at risk. We could have policy issues that come into play on EVE as rates begin to drop. And it, what we've learned maybe in this cycle is that they can move and they can move quickly. You know, we might anticipate that it's a gradual movement, but then you get a new story out that kind of pushes things a little faster. I think what balance sheet managers have to be aware of is rates will go back down. So be disciplined in the investment decisions they're making now. Uh, you want income that is going to be, for lack of a better term, sticky. You know, it's it's longer, it's it's more fixed. And that goes against our grain in so many instances. But when you're at the top of the rate cycle, then it makes sense to lock in some of those income streams. And so I would say just be disciplined. Uh, understanding the rates are going to come down. So look at ways to stabilize the income so it doesn't drop with the rates as quickly as it rose. Right now, markets are showing expectations that the Fed will start cutting uh, sometime in the second quarter of next year. Um, we think at FHN Financial, our economics team, that at least according to Fed communication, the, the rate cuts will be uh, much later next year um, and perhaps even into 2025 but other than that idea of being disciplined, of being patient, what do you think is the most important thing for banks and investors to consider when it comes to ALM in, in prepping for eventual rate cuts? Is there anything other than that, that patience and discipline? Well, I'd say that's, that's the primary thing. But I, I think over the period while we kind of anticipate that terminal point or that point where they begin to fall, 
uh, I think we have to look at opportunities that the yield curve gives us. And, and by that, I mean both on the, the investment side and the funding side. Be careful against locking in uh, you know, long-term funding that's not necessary. In other words, if you can get a, a different rate at a different maturity, understand rates are going to come down. So you want those costs to be able to come down. As you're looking at investment opportunities, the, the shape of the yield curve and where you can get the most yield for the risk that's assumed with that investment, uh, I think you have to be opportunistic. You have to be, again, disciplined, but you have to stay active. I think the, the one thing we've seen that's been the biggest challenge is um, when there's inactivity, then our reactions end up being maybe counter to what we would have liked. So staying active in the investment and the funding side and taking opportunities the yield curve presents, I think is going to be key. Mike DeLisle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Man, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope this is a benefit and I look forward to talking again sometime. That was Mike Delisle, Senior Vice President of Asset Liability Management with FHN Financial. What really stands out to me about that interview is how ALM modeling learns from these new episodes of distress, how the scenarios and risks from something like March bank tensions now get factored in for the future. Also, as much as the focus the last year and a half has been on adjusting to this higher rate environment, it's never too early to think about how to position for eventual rate cuts. Fed officials are now free to speak publicly after Wednesday's decision. We expect comments from FOMC participants to continue emphasizing data dependence in the Fed's policy decisions, but there will also be a stark contrast in tone between those confident the Fed should stop raising rates and those who feel they have not yet reached the terminal rate. Next week, we'll see the August PCE report, which includes spending and income data, as well as the Fed's favorite inflation metric. The following week, we'll see the September employment report, which should tell us whether that 0.3 percentage point increase in the August unemployment rate was data noise or a more meaningful uptick. The threat of a possible government shutdown will loom over the next few weeks, with appropriations running out September 30th. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is dealing with opposition within his own party on a suitable bill, while Senate Democrats are likely to reject anything involving dramatic spending cuts. While the shutdown can disrupt federal operations and even some data releases, the bond market impacts won't be as drastic as the debt ceiling drama we saw earlier this year. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.